Today is part two of the two-part sermon mini-series that we began last week. Chapters 7 and 8 of John's Gospel are one account, one event at one time and place in history. In both chapters, John is portraying for us the person and work of Jesus. The setting is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is Jesus' third and final trip to the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. That being the case, as it's widely recognized, the status of the text inserted in between these two chapters, the adulterous woman, scribes, Pharisees, and John 7.53 to 8.11, as original part of John's gospel is highly in doubt. Uh, these verses were completely absent from all of the oldest manuscripts of the gospel of John. So the first appearance of this account happened in the 5th century, and even then it fell in different places and in different gospels and different places within John's gospels. I do think the event could have happened, but it did not happen here, and I am not going to touch on it this morning. That said, last week, John 2 has two purposes for us. Uh, Jesus and the Feast of Tabernacles is going to be shown as fulfilled in this. And the second is that John's going to be our representative around the questions regarding Jesus's identity. Last week I attempted to show you who Jesus is and then thus why you should follow him. This week who Jesus is should drive us to worship him. I'm going to begin in verse 12 of chapter 8. Again Jesus spoke to them saying, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. And then down to verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, show us your son. He's the light of the world and has always existed. He is God. Send your spirit to prepare our hearts today for what you have for us in this text. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So it's been one year since Jesus was here in Jerusalem and had that significant clash with the Jewish authorities. It's been several months since Jesus fed the 5,000 in chapter 6. And now we have chapters 7 and 8. Last week we experienced lots of confusion and fussing and discussion over Jesus' identity. This morning's text will contain a little bit more fussing. Uh, of who Jesus is and who Jesus is not, but it's in chapter 8 that John shows us that Jesus flips who's on trial. It was Jesus in chapter 7, but in chapter 8, it's the Jewish officials and ultimately the world, certainly the religious world. Four points. Since Jesus is the light of the world, we must worship him. Since Jesus is the Son of God, we must worship him. Since Jesus is the truth, We must worship him. And since Jesus is, I am, we must worship him. First point, since Jesus is the light of the world, we must worship him. Again, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you missed last week's sermon, I'd recommend that you go back and listen. In that sermon on chapter 7, I set the stage for the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus' claim in chapter 7 is huge, that he was the water of life. If anyone comes to him thirsty, go drink. 
And you who believe out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this at a very dramatic part during the Feast of Tabernacles. His second dramatically timed claim comes at the feast again this week, that he is the light of the world. Every night of the feast, starting at dusk, the court of women was brilliantly lit by four golden lampstands, each with four branches, giving 16 different lights The court of women uh, was not relegated to women only, but it was the place where women could be. The light blazed throughout Jerusalem, lighting up the whole city, illuminating those limestone walls. They were singing and dancing and music until morning. It would have reminded uh, them that God had led them through the wilderness and had shown up as a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. The final night, that main candelabrum was deliberately left unlit as a reminder that Israel had not yet received full salvation. It's at this point that Jesus speaks up and declares, I am the light of the world. The following night after the feast was over, the lights would be extinguished, but Jesus as the light of the world would never be extinguished. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, John has been leading us to this point in his gospel, and he casts Jesus' confrontation with his opponents as a battle between light and darkness. This is the second I am statement in John's gospel. We, we saw Jesus declare that he is the bread of life, and here in chapter 8, that he is the light of the world. My youngest, uh, Janie, her 13th birthday was in April, and two weeks ago, she and I took Uh, her I Do Hard Things trip. Walker and Marshall each had their own trip on their 13th birthday as well. Janie and I rode 100 miles on our bikes, and she beasted it. Uh, One night, we finished up north of Brevard, and we were setting up camp in the uh, Mount Pisgah National Forest. And once we got up on the Blue Ridge Parkway, we had about 30 feet of driving visibility. It was crazy. I've never really seen it that thick before. Uh, We set up camp in the rhododendron, right? Uh, And it was even less. And so our flashlights, they only illuminated the next couple of steps in front of us. It was was amazing. We were in a cloud at 5,000 feet. It was so thick. And you know, life is a pilgrimage. It's a journey. The story of the Bible is one from moving from darkness to light. It's that flashlight faith that we have, that Janie and I experienced last week in the mountains, the point of the flashlight is not to show you the destination, but the next few steps. When we trust Christ as the source of light, he only gives us the direction that we need, those steps in front of us, a few at a time. Very rarely does he show us the destination, just our next stopping point, not our staying point, but our stopping point. It's a journey. With Jesus as the light of the world, we don't shine forth our own light. We reflect it, right, like the moon. We reflect Jesus' light and what he is doing in the world in redeeming and restoring creation, calling his people to himself. How does this challenge your faith? If you're like me, you don't totally love it. Uh, You want maybe to make sure that you are seen, not just reflected, or certainly like me, you, you may want to make sure that you know where you're going so that you can make it there. Maybe with as little angst and suffering as possible, too. But God very rarely 
has us go the way that we think is the easiest or the most direct route. He's taking us through life because the journey is the way that he sanctifies us, makes us look more like him as, he, as we grow in the fruit of his spirit. What do you need to do? What is God calling you to do today? If there's a, maybe a step of honesty that you need to take with your parents, with a spouse, with a friend, maybe a coworker or a boss, maybe a significant other, maybe there's someone that God is leading you to with whom you need to speak the truth in love. Is there someone God wants you to talk to about your faith, about maybe how he's led you through some really uncertain times and in some surprising ways to where you are now? Ask God to show you by his light which steps are the next right ones for you to take in faith. He's the light of the world, and he can shine through you. Second point, Jesus is the light of the world. We must worship him. Jesus is the son of God and we must worship him. So we get to be flies on the stone wall, as it were, in this discussion between the Jewish authorities and Jesus today. What we're left with is exactly what they were left with. Either you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, or you will not believe him to be the Son of God. If you do not believe him, uh, then I'm going to let Jesus tell you that answer. If you do believe him, our call is to worship him. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, the Pharisees' primary point here was that Jesus was not adhering to standard legal procedure. 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Jesus is witnessing as the Son of God, not as a creature, not as a normal man, but in full awareness of his true identity of his divine origin. He goes on in 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus is not denying his right to judge, and he asserts that he and the Father are in total and complete agreement. Also, he focuses on the Father corroborating his own testimony as the Son of God that we must worship. But even if our own hearts don't always want to acknowledge him as our true God, the Pharisees, as the Pharisees do in verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from them. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just 
as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus is is asserting pretty clearly that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and on his Father's mission. But as we skip down to verse 37, the paternity uh, disagreement, disputes is about to get a little bit more intense. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now, Jesus notes that their literal, physical descent from Abraham is legit. But their claim to Abraham is contradicted spiritually by their plot against Jesus. 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. The Jewish leaders attempt to kill Jesus. That ultimately points to their hostility toward God, toward the Father, toward Yahweh. And Jesus said Abraham was receptive to divine revelation, and he acted in obedience to it. Jesus says, you're not doing that. In verse 41, Jesus says, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born in sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to know your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus says that their father, the devil, is 100% opposed to the truth. This is why the Jewish religious leaders want to do his bidding and to kill Jesus. Their spiritual dullness results from their failure to combine hearing with faith. They do not want to acknowledge, much less worship the Son of God. This unbelief is ultimately rooted in the people's subjection to satanic lies and deception. It's not just a lack of understanding or human choice. Their eyes are closed, and they're dead in their sins. That should give us a lot of pause when we feel ourselves judging someone, knowing that the Spirit may not have yet still awakened them, remembering that we too were dead and blinded by lies. That should give us pause when we are critical of seemingly foolish decisions of others. And it should spark our inner grace and mercy towards others because if God had not been merciful and grace, gracious to us, we would not know him. We would not trust him. We would not call upon him. We would reject him and we would still be dead in our sins. This should only move us to compassion, only to love If it moves you to pride or inappropriate confidence in your faith, maybe, or your status, uh, maybe this should be a warning to you as well. Jesus says in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus affirms his absolute moral perfection here, total freedom from sin. So, Mike dropped, gauntlet run, this is it. The gospel, it shatters the conception that we do something in our salvation. 
It's not that we're special. Not that our righteousness is something. Nothing that we've done has caused him to love us a little more. And nothing we've done has caused him to love us a little less. Pretend this is God the Father's day, right? What would you do if you had an entire day alone with you and your heavenly Father? What would you do? Well, I do always love to do outdoor things, uh, Father's Day and any day. And as you can imagine, all my kids' 13th birthday hard trips were pretty much outside. So Walker, on his 13th birthday trip, which was five years ago, we biked 49 miles through the North Carolina mountains, up and down from Bernard. I was deep in the mountains on the way to Hot Springs, pulling a trailer with our camping gear, food, water, all the way to the Asheville airport. It involved hitchhiking twice. Uh, Once we got to the put-in, we camped, and then over the next two days, we paddled the French Broad River. It runs north. That's probably helpful for you to know. From the airport all the way back up to Bernard. We had three dam portages. The first one, no problem. The second one involved hitchhiking with two loaded 15- and 17-foot touring kayaks. The third dam involved a really long railroad track carry. We paddled 51 miles in all, and he beasted it. His definition of a great three days, not sure, sort of. Uh, He does really hard things still, so I think lesson learned. But would he choose to do that again if he had the choice? Probably not. Jesus is saying that he is God's son and that he always has been, always existed. That what he does and says, has done, will do, is directed by his father. In that, he commands worship. And in that reality, people should listen to him. His reality is one that is known and experienced by faith. Did Walker know that we were going to finish our adventure as a 13-year-old boy? I think he surely had doubts. We experienced a whole lot of rain and thus increased technical whitewater, rubbed a hole in the bottom of one of our boats, camped within 30 feet of an active rail line, and heard, saw, felt Three trains come in the middle of the night, each unexpected and each equally terrifying. I think Walker trusted me. Uh, Did I know that we were going to finish our adventure? Well, I did know that we were not going to quit. As a 43-year-old at the time, I had done a lot of crazy, festive, and difficult things outdoors over the years. I knew we would finish. God the Father knew the destination for his son and the stopping points along the way. Jesus trusted his father. He knew that this was the only way to bring his father's children home. Jesus had to die. He had to be separated from his father. Jesus had to have the wrath of his father poured out on him. Our sin, yours and mine, all the sins of his children of all time. Our sin, the father poured out his wrath on his only begotten son who knew no sin and he lived for us. He rose for us. What should you do if you have an entire day alone with your heavenly father? We have spiritual retreats on our campus here at MRPC from time to time, but of course you can do those anytime you wish. Uh, Maybe you need to carve out some time, maybe today with all the cozy rain, right? Uh, As cheesy as this sounds, could sound, uh, maybe Light a candle, a little nod to Jesus being the light of the world. Sit and give thanks for the blessings that are yours in Christ. If you're patient, 
you will see so many. Ask yourself, what of those, if God took them away, would you be questioning him if he was good? After some time listening, maybe make a request known to him. Pray through it. Lord, how can I honor you in this situation? Pause and be still and listen over the next course of several days, perhaps. Maybe even have a a, a pen and pad ready to jot some things down. Don't process them yet, but once you feel God has maybe done speaking to you in this, go to that pad and see what you have. It won't be the final destination, but themes might repeat. There might be actions that emerge. Ask God to help you take that next step. The Father led his son on a mission. He will lead you as the light of the Father, the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the Son of God. Thirdly, since Jesus is the truth, we must worship him. We come back from verse 30. As he was saying these things, that he's the Son of God, many believed in him. Now to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Truth here in in John, for John is not merely intellectual. It's centered in Christ who saves people from the moral darkness of sin. It's not out there. No, the abiding words of Jesus. Jesus is the word per John 1. So living in Jesus, knowing and experiencing Jesus, that is truth. He is truth. In him there's no falsehood. It's impossible. He is true. And his truth sets us free. Now, the Jews, they respond very strongly to Jesus' accusation that they might not be free. Freedom was considered a birthright to every Hebrew. And in Leviticus, the law laid down that no Hebrew, no matter how poor, was ever to be a slave. So this is why Peter, most likely, uh, and the other disciples respond so strongly when Jesus seeks to wash their feet in John 13. So the Jewish leaders would have known that Jesus was not speaking about physical freedom, right? The Israelites had fallen into countless political control from a number of uh, empires, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greek, Rome. No, I believe that the Jewish leaders would have understood Jesus correctly here, that he was actually speaking to them about a spiritual freedom, They were looking to an end-time scenario that was tied to a believing remnant, remainder, uh, about the restoration of the Davidic kingdom and the coming of the Messiah when he would defeat all of God's enemies. Jesus is using his intimate relationship with the Father as the Son of God to highlight his authority to set sinners free. The freedom, it only is a gift from God with whom we are called to worship Truth or reality is what is, right? It's not always what we want it to be, right? Marshall and I, on his 13th birthday, I Do Hard Things trip two years ago, we hiked the Foothills Trail, 76.2 miles, and he beasted it. It rained the entire time. Short windows of non-rain, but every day, and our middle two days were kind of back-to-back 23 milers. 
and uh, it's rained like I had never seen before. But on that last day, the last eight miles of the last day of the trip, it poured like I've never, like I've never seen it. Water, I mean, it was like this deep on the trail. We're supposed to be hiking, not paddling, right? And so this is just pouring down the trail, rushing at us eight miles. He did it. This was our truth, our reality, nothing that we could do about it. It just was. Following Jesus was our application last week. We saw that it's not so easy to follow Jesus, but it's worth it. Not easy, but worth it. can be grueling, can be difficult. We can lose our way in forgetting who Jesus is, who we are, and why we can trust him. It's the same for worshiping him. But with our focus on him and not on ourselves and not on our circumstances, it's easier to worship him. What is it to worship God? As showing reverence to adoring him, honoring him. We give of ourselves to him and service to him, expressing love to him, doing what he asks us to do, loving others, denying ourselves. Why does he do this? Because he knows that we are not prone in our sinful state to do this on our own. It's not going to happen. He asks us to corporately worship one day a week, and on that day, take a Sabbath rest to uh, refrain from our regular work, to worship him, to sit and bask in who he is and be reminded of who he is and who we are, that we need this rest, the one in seven reset that we do. It's a gift. He's given it to us. He knows what's best, what we need, because he became a man, right? It's, he really does know what we need, what we're up against. He knows what life is all about. Sometimes when I pause and, and stop and look around, too often I see that I have once again forgotten what this life is all about. It's not about me. It's not about what I have or how I live or what I do, for whom I do things. No, it's my life lived in daily worship of God. And I show him that I know him as I trust him. I listen to him in his word and take small steps of action and faith in the love of him the love of others. It's all-encompassing. How, how do you think about God outside of Sunday morning? Does he have an impact on how you live your life or why you live your life? Does knowing God change you fundamentally, deep down? Do you see him at work in the world and others' lives specifically and in the more broadly, maybe even the governmental structures around the world? Is he king? Is he your king? Would anyone know that? Are you embarrassed about the truth that is Jesus. You must dig down deep into what and who he is. You must allow him to dig down deep into who you are. He wants to change who you are because you're just at a stopping place. You're not at a staying place. Your journey continues. Since Jesus is the light of the world, the son of God, the truth, now since Jesus is I am, we must worship him. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? All right, so this is the opposite of worship, right? Uh, a harsh, offensive slam calls him a Samaritan would be like a Jewish apostate. And they blame it on uh, demon possession. That's probably actually a nice thing that they said there. 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Super calm response from Jesus. That's what I'm picturing. The suffering servant of Isaiah peeks out here. That's what I'm picturing. Jesus is also recognizing in this shame-based culture that the Jewish leaders are not honoring him as God's son. He says in the beginning of verse 50, 
I'm going to read quite a little bit here. Just follow me. We're, we're almost done. Yet I do not seek my own glory. Here is one. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me and of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In these verses, we saw where the religious leaders are still thinking with earthly minds. And here the Jewish leaders knew what Jesus was claiming is they saw it as blasphemy when he said, I am, and they try to stone him to death. But this was not Jesus' time, nor his manner in which he was to die. That was crucifixion. What Jesus says is that I have eternally existed. Jesus echoes God's self-identification to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. And it's not just that he's pre-existent before Moses like I was. No, it's past, present ongoing forever. I am fully God, fully man. This is Jesus. If I were talking specifically about Exodus 3 here, I'd mention that God as I am is uh, self-existent, not dependent upon any other, that he's self-sufficient, that he's unchangeable, that he's omniscient. He knows all things completely at one time and has planned them, that he's good, that he's love, that he cannot be fully known that he's omnipresent, he's not limited to time or space. This is who Jesus is claiming to be, I am. It's big. It's about as big as it gets. One last point before I apply it. Uh, When Jesus leaves the temple in verse 59, it's as the divine presence, I am, leaving the old holy space. He'll not return to the temple again. He only visits the outer precincts in, in chapter 10. It's his formation of a community apart from the temple that we now see becomes apparent in the remainder of John's gospel. It's a big deal. At the beginning of chapter 7, we discover that the Sanhedrin were meeting like the Supreme Court. And they did not normally meet on the Sabbath, and they did not normally meet on festivals. But they were meeting on this night, this festival night. Why? They were moving to quickly discern how they would kill Jesus. We see Nicodemus stand up for him at the end of chapter 7. Though we don't know what he's thinking at that point, he does, however, change his mind. He changes his heart. God changes him, it seems, at the end of John's gospel. And Nicodemus provides burial spices spices for for Jesus' body after crucifixion. With such a huge declaration for Jesus that he is I am, it must cause us to pause, to stop and question, is there anything that I hold so sacred, something that is very important to me, that might not be right. Are you willing to ask yourself, maybe even ask more importantly the Holy Spirit, will you show me places where I'm wrong, prideful, need to learn and grow, where I've made some assumptions maybe that aren't true, where I need to apologize to someone. Maybe I need to look deeper into this matter and consider 
maybe I don't have it all together, that I don't know all there is to know about you or a certain matter or matters, that there are other perspectives to consider. I think that's what the Jewish leaders are being asked to do. I think that's what we're being asked to do. And sometimes it brings me to a new understanding about positions that I once felt were airtight. No matter how challenging, Jesus' light always brings me to a better place. May that continue to be so for us, for you and for me, for Christ's church here at MRPC, around the world. May we fight for Jesus. May we worship him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this day, this text, chapter 8, Lord, seeing a real window into who you are and what you were doing while on earth. Lord, you were, you were beat up, as it were, with words later on the cross and all the way to the cross, stabbings and punchings and mocking, Lord. But, and these were mostly many from religious authorities. Lord, help us as we seek to follow you, as we seek to worship you, continue to reveal yourself to us in your word, through your word, through your Holy Spirit, that we might walk humbly with our God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.